This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello, good evening, and welcome to the Lit Lit Show on Thursday, the 5th of October. With me tonight is linguistics expert, Dr. Jody Clark. And we're going to be talking all things grammar. Let's get to it. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, good evening, and welcome to the show, everybody. It's the first week of October and the summer's long, long, long forgotten. The grind is beginning to take hold and everything begins to weigh a lot more heavily. But look, take an hour out tonight and listen to me as I talk to Dr. Jodie Clark, who is a linguist with a particular interest in grammar. And we're going to be talking all things grammar, including teaching grammar and how teachers feel about teaching grammar. Jodie, are you there? I believe I am there. Paul, can you hear me okay? I can hear you loud and clear. Fantastic. Jodie, I pick up immediately. Now, to my untrained ear, that's not a Scottish accent. It's not English. It's not Welsh. It's not Irish. It's not Northern Irish either. So, Jodie, the vital question I have to ask you is... Who are you supporting in the Rugby World Cup? <laughs> That's a, an excellent question, Paul. And, because I um, don't think America have a team, do they? Um, see, that was what I was going to next ask, which is who's actually playing in the Rugby World Cup? Which oh, kind my of, I, We probably oh, just lost my. the entire audience, haven't we? <laughs> yes, 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 definitely. Yes. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, maybe um, we'll just close that off there. So, Jodie... Where is that accent from? Where are you from? I am from the East Coast of the U.S. So if you sort of think of the East Coast line from Maine down to Florida, and then you go straight down, straight in the middle of that, you'll come to the state called uh, Maryland that people here call Maryland, but it's actually Maryland. Um, And it's, um, it's got a sort of estuary right in the middle of it called the Chesapeake Bay. And on the east of that, there's a peninsula. And I sort of grew up on that sort of peninsula farming fishing type uh, area there and when I do go back to that area when you listed all of the places that you couldn't say my accent came from when I go back there they can't place my accent either so it is a bit of a homeless accent these days (laughs) yeah that's interesting yes so they think you're maybe from somewhere over here or whatever exactly exactly yes gotcha gotcha yeah yeah. Yeah, they they often say you don't sound like you're from here (laughs) yeah oh gosh yeah so uh we'll see I'm probably going to get this because we do say Maryland Yes. What did you say? Mar- Maryland? Mar- uh, now I can't say it. Maryland. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, how did you get, you know, what, what's your journey? How did you get from there to here then? Because you're in Sheffield now, isn't that it? That's right. Yeah, I'm actually in, uh, in Barnsley in South Yorkshire. So um, I'm okay. teaching at Sheffield Hallam University. 
but um, I've now lived um, much, much more of my life sort of outside of the U.S. than in it. So uh, which will explain why the accent has uh, has, right. has disappeared a bit. But everyone here obviously can recognize <laughs> the, 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 the dulcet American tones. But no, I am um, I'm. Um, moved to Paris immediately after doing my degree in the nineties uh, um, okay. and uh, taught, uh, taught English in Paris for a couple of years and then moved back to the U S for a year and then um, got, got a, got a job in Strasbourg. So I got a chance to go back to France. So I was in Strasbourg wow. for three years and then I uh, had visited the Lake district um, once while I was doing my degree and I had this real longing to come back um, to, to Britain. And right. so uh, I applied to do a PhD um, and I did my PhD in Loughborough and uh, married my husband and the rest is history. <laughs> There you go. There you go. It always comes down to love, but doesn't it in the end? Well, I mean, really, I just needed the visa, but you know, I, I do love the play. I'm teasing. I do love the husband as well. <laughs> Very, good. Very good. And so through all that time, your, your interest really then was language and linguistics, wasn't it? Yes. And that kind of came in. I, my degree as an undergraduate was English and that was mostly literature with some creative writing thrown in. I didn't do really anything that had to do with linguistics. And then when I went to teach um, in Paris and I'm teaching English to French speakers, that's when it became so fascinating to me because it's this realization that there's all these things about your language that you just know and you don't know that you know it. Um, and someone who doesn't speak that language doesn't know why the language is structured that way. And you might not know why the language is structured that way either, but mm -hmm. just automatically you do it. It's just part of something I call your linguistic intuition. Well, I don't call it that. It is called that. <laughs> and yeah. it's um, and that just became so fascinating to me. Um, that when I went back to Strasbourg, I was I was working for an American company or actually an American university, and I asked if they would um, be willing to fund my master's degree. And um, I asked, you know, I, I did a master's degree then in linguistics and talk about the things you'll do for love. I was in love with <laughs> with the things I was doing in the uh, on the linguistics master's degree. It just felt like um, it was like a, being a kid in a candy shop. It was just. There, there was an endless thing, endless things to discover and explore. And it was just everyone, it was just surrounding me all the time because everybody talks, everybody writes language, yeah. we're swimming in it. So I was just, you know, immersed um, in interesting linguistic nuggets. <laughs> Gosh, yeah. But, but what great passion and enthusiasm you have for language. Gosh, it's, uh, it's great coming across immediately it's yeah. uh it's you I, I was just about to say you won't be able to get me to shut up <laughs> <laughs> well we'll have to uh we'll have to because probably both talkers but we'll have to be quiet uh, occasionally because we're very lucky tonight because uh Catherine taylor who's also a host on teachers talk radio I see she's now in the studio and she's expressed an interest in this area. So, Catherine, I think you're now yes. connected. Could we check that out? Yes, uh, I, I am. You connected. are, yeah. Hi, hi. How are you both? Hi, Catherine. It's, it's great. great. Doing great. Hi. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I'm. I'm really, really interested. I'm. Um, I'm doing my doctorate at the moment, and uh, part of what I've looked at is. Uh, is the way that people use language 
sometimes well usually I'm sure at cross purposes and uh and so I really find that very fascinating um so I just thought I'd hop on and, and join in the conversation this evening Catherine, Good. Like well Catherine you're you're very welcome and I think we'll get to that you feel free to chip in anytime uh anytime you. you want yeah and Catherine, can I ask, are you studying people actually talking to each other? Do you have that same excitement that I have when you're looking at these transcripts of people talking to each other? Um, I am. It's not people talking to each other. Well, it is. It is. It's. But I haven't recorded people talking to each other. But what I've done is I've done a phenomenographic analysis of um, it's basically hermeneutics. Mm -hmm. Um, how language is used in in academic papers on ah. uh, the subject of professional development and sort of tried to identify all the different ways that people use the same words um, and have the, the nuances and meanings of those words. Yes, fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Mm. Thank you. I wonder, Jodie, could we take it back to the start? And I think you said something um, you said something about how people acquire their language. Um, how do people acquire language? Well, that that question is I'll, I'll answer that to the best of my ability. I, this this is a field called first language acquisition, um, and it, that is a fascinating field. It's not one that I have done that much in. I've just done enough to kind of understand um, this business of the linguistic intuition. And effectively, um, children really, they, they, Chomsky said they had something called a language acquisition device somewhere in their brains. And what that means is that they simply absorb, that's not a scientific word, but <laughs> they, not in this context anyway, but they absorb the structures of language. So that's the syntax, that's the sort of the order in which um, in ev everyday language you would expect sort of the structures to fall. Mm -hmm. different types of words and phrases and that type of thing and obviously they learn all the sounds of their languages and they learn all the words of their languages and that type of thing but what um language acquisition experts have realized is that you know when your children start speaking i, I don't have children but i have been around children when they start speaking and of course i'm fascinated by that um when we can sort of hear how they're piecing together their language and making sense of their world through language but what language acquisition theorists or scholars have learned is that it's well, well, well before they actually start producing words and phrases that they're able to understand and recognize the structures of their language that they've been surrounded by. And they mm -hmm. can do these really amazing tests and experiments where they can sort of sit a child down and they can pay attention to which way the child turns their face. And what will happen is if, if they hear something that sounds like their language, meaning the structure of the language corresponds to what they expect to hear, they'll be interested in it. They'll be thinking, ah, that's my language, I should pay attention. And so what they'll do is they'll have someone reciting something that is not, what we say it's not well-formed. And that doesn't mean that somebody's saying something that we consider to be wrong. What it means is just nobody would actually say it in English. So something like read the door, read the door. You mm -hmm. wouldn't really say that. So a child might turn their head when you first say it, but they'll move their head back because they're like, well, that doesn't sound right. That's not my language. But if you shift it to the red door, the red door, the red door, the child will turn around and say, that sounds like my language. And so the child, mm -hmm. and this could be like a, a 10 month old child or an eight month old child, who knows that it goes determiner, adjective, noun, and a noun phrase in English. You know, and this is before they can say 
you know, give me my toy. (laughs) And so obviously they... Sorry, you were saying, Catherine? No, no, no. I was just going to say, I just remember, sorry, I interrupted totally. I just remember when my um, my little boy, he was, I think sometimes kids are either a walker or a talker, and he was definitely a talker. Mm-hmm. I was just reminded when he when he got the hang of um, the word otherwise, oh. and he would use it liberally. Yes. So he would, uh, we would say, will you, will you, uh, you know, eat your vegetables? And he'd say, otherwise we do playing. <gasps> wow he's trying to reason with us wow and he was really young when he did that and it was just this he knew that this was a bargaining chip um yeah. well that isn't actually really how old did you say he was Catherine when he did that oh he was oh I couldn't put, put, my, put my finger on it but he was young I remember showing a video of him talking to some of the English teachers at my school and them saying you know that I'd expect him to be a good three four months older from what's going on there but uh, I mean the the interesting thing is he is about as dyslexic as you can be so he he is clearly with the verbal is extraordinary but can't write at all so it's I don't know if that has anything to do with anything yeah, and again, this is a question around literacy and oracy. Um, and again, I'm 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 not one to speak on that. And I'm, there there will be experts on dyslexia, but it is um, perhaps a misconception that people think that you know if if you struggle with writing that there's something wrong with your language. Well, absolutely not. You know, your language is um, is is language is oral before it's written, um, and so people often sort of conflate that. But it's fascinating with the otherwise. That's um, mm. there's a bunch of different terms for the word otherwise, but one word we could use, especially the way he's using it, is called a discourse marker. And what that does, what a discourse marker does is it orients what's happening in the conversation that so that it can that it can show where you are in relation to what's being said. So otherwise can say effectively is orienting your subjectivity in relation to what's being said. So that's I don't like what you're saying. I'm proposing something new. <laughs> and, exactly. exactly. Another... We used to do it all the time. We still does it now, but it was it was very young when it started. <laughs> it's another another classic one. Not as sophisticated, perhaps, as otherwise is well. Um, and w- well isn't discourse marker. It's also a, a way of responding in a sort of what's called a dispreferred way. So if someone, I remember my nephew used to do this. I'd say. I'd say to him, Jake, you, you really were supposed to, you know, your mom said you're supposed to be cleaning your room. And he'd say, well, and what that means, what the well does is he says he knows that that the, the correct response is I'll go do that now, but he wants to orient me to a different response. And he's like managing my expectations with well. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. so it's sophisticated things we do with language and um, and children, children do it pretty good, pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm wondering a little bit too, in, in terms of acquiring the language, is, is there something to do with playfulness in that? And, you know, almost that little bit of kind of teasing and using the word otherwise lots, you know, is there something about this is a new thing and I'm going to use it where and when I can? Well, I wonder if it's, I think it might be playfulness, but I think it might also be um, I'm negotiating my world. And I'm mm. using the tools at my disposal to negotiate my world. And so mm. I have this um, example that I often use in teaching, which is um, my niece when she was two years and eight months old. <laughs> and uh, she was 
uh, talking to my, well, I was actually recording this. This is, I'm going to sort of give you a little bit of a transcript of this conversation because I was babysitting her and her baby brother. And I was clearly more interested in what they were saying than what was actually going on in the room. So I was being a terrible caregiver and a pretty good field linguist. And so mm -hmm. I was recording their conversation and uh, she, um, they were playing with building blocks on the floor. And uh, she said, suddenly she just shouted out, Jake, take my blocks away. And so that was not a spirit of playfulness. That was a spirit of desperation and injustice and frustration. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but one of the things that I love about that when she said, Jake, take my blocks away, is that even though we've got someone who hasn't perfectly acquired her first language, she says take rather than has taken or took. Mm -hmm. um, other than that, it's in exactly the structure you would expect for a kind of regular sentence or clause in mm -hmm. English. It goes subject, verb, complement, adjunct, Jake, mm -hmm. take, and then the complement is my blocks and away. And I, she didn't say um, my blocks away, Jake, take. She didn't say take Jake my blocks away. So even though it's not exactly totally, she hasn't totally acquired every aspect of language, that structure of the clause, she's mm -hmm. nailed. And then later when I sort of turn around, I don't know, I went off and did something, maybe I checked the tape recorder or something, and I noticed that she had the blocks back and I thought Jake had given them back to her. And I said, thanks for giving it back, Jake. And Ellie, my niece said, Ellie, Ellie, give it back by myself. <laughs> and, and so she she clearly just taken them back <laughs> because she couldn't rely on um, justice in this world. And so I, but that is another great example, subject, verb, complement, adjunct. Ellie, mm -hmm. subject, give, verb, it, complement, back, adjunct, by myself, mm -hmm. uh, adjunct. And she's got the structure of the clause perfectly nailed even if within those bits of structure within those chunks there's a few things that she hasn't completely acquired yet and so i think that this um language acquisition i think children are navigating their worlds the way we navigate our worlds um, and they're using the tools at their disposal but it's absolutely fascinating to me how the the, the level of structure that they actually have and i just think in relation to you know, teaching grammar or learning grammar now or learning about grammar, you know, as, as educators, if we can remember that we knew all this stuff when we were two years and eight months old, if, you know, if a two-year-old can, can access this aspect of structure when they are in a fraught state <laughs> of that mm -hmm. block theft, then we have access to it too. Our students have access to it. And it's just a question of unpicking it, realizing that it's inside, it's deep within us. And we can just pull it out whenever we want to. And, and we just need a way of sort of recognizing what the structures are and how to identify them. Mm -hmm. Can I just can I just ask a question actually? I'm interested. You've obviously you talked a lot about the structure, but what would you say about the acquisition of sort of inflection? Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll I'll just give an example. My my aunt, when she was doing her PGCE back at some point during the nineteen seventies, um, recorded me, and I would have been about two. And mm -hmm. apparently, it was fascinating because I said, "What are they doing?" 
what are they doing? Yeah. And yeah. everyone on the PGC apparently was delighted with this recording that she had of this two-year-old saying that with the, the same phrase twice with two different inflections. Is there any research on, on you know, the acquisition of expression in your language? Or is that a different yeah. area? No, it's completely the same area. In fact, the type of grammar that I uh, use is called systemic functional grammar, and it was uh, spearheaded by a linguist, late linguist M.A.K. Halliday. And his work is on both inflection. He's done a lot. The, the term for it is prosody, um, studying the inflection of language. So he's done quite a lot of work on prosody, that meaning inflection. And that's not just that business of what are you doing that's putting the prominence on a particular um, bit of what's called your tone unit or your utterance. And there's also the rising and falling of the actual, what's again, the tone unit. Um, so what are you doing, falling tone? What are you doing? Same, same falling tone, but with a prominence on R. And so his work did a lot, lots and lots on um, the, on the, on the, intonation patterns and on the prosody element. And what's interesting about that is that in his argument is that in spoken language, the kind of key sort of basic unit, um, often we think in spoken language, the basic unit, the smallest unit is the phoneme, but the, but the basic sort of unit of expressing meaning <laughs> is the in spoken language, he says it's the tone unit and in written language, it's the clause. And mm -hmm. so with children um, and obviously those things will overlap, right? So what are you doing is both a clause and a tone unit. Um, whereas the response to that might be nothing. Well, nothing isn't a clause, but it is a tone unit. And as a tone unit, it kind of puts across the whole bit of information, if that makes any sense. And just on that, I had a really fascinating conversation with another with another niece, and uh, she was pre-verbal. And I noticed I was checking. Honestly, I do I do sometimes like engage with children without thinking about their language. But in this case, I was checking to see if she could tell the difference between a question where the answer is either yes or no, or what they call like a WH question. You know, so what are you doing? Um, has a, so a WH question will have a falling tone and do you want to go to the shops has a rising tone. So if you're expecting a yes, no in English, you have a rising tone at the end of your question. And if it's a what, a who, what, where, when uh, question, you have a falling tone. And I was just checking. So I asked her a whole bunch of questions and she was pre-verbal, so she couldn't actually respond. But every time I asked a yes, no question, she always said no. And every time I asked a WH question, she always said, do, 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 or, or she just babbled. And so she was responding. She could tell whether I was asking a yes, no, or a WH question. And that I'm, it must have been based on the intonation that she had already picked up on the intonation. Some language acquisition scholars, as far as I know, think or propose that intonation might be the first thing that, that children learn. Mm. Do, do you think that that's why, um... I mean, I don't know if it's true, actually, but I, I've kind of, I suppose there's a bit of a myth that children who are late talkers often show a lot more behaviour and frustration because it's going on inside, but they can't get it out. Whereas early talkers, perhaps you don't get as many tantrums. I don't know. That's maybe that's completely not true. But is, is there any 
anything in in that in how people express their behavior linked to language acquisition i don't i absolutely don't have the answer to that all i can do is respond from my own experience when i struggle to communicate i do feel very frustrated um, when i'm speaking in a in a in a language that i'm not comfortable with or if it's a situation where i feel that i'm just struggling to communicate i myself feel very frustrated um but that's the best I can do for you is just mm. talk from my own subjective experience there. I don't have any of the, I haven't studied any of the research on that. No, thank you. It's just, it's just came to me. That's all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to, you mentioned grammar then. Um, so, so what's the role, role of grammar in terms of language? I suppose we've, we've looked at and you give many illustrations, but and how does that fit really with us as teachers? What do we need to be doing in terms of grammar and teaching good grammar? That's such a good question because people have so many feelings about grammar. I don't know if this is your experience, but I actually really like to use the word grammar because it's a remarkably provocative word. I, 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 I have use... lost I have lost a lot of good friends by correcting their grammar over the yeah, years. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, <laughs> I would start doing that. Well, you know what that. you have to say? You have to go, there, there, there. That's what you have to say. You're comforting a friend over a grammar issue. Yeah, but no, I first, you know, a bit of unsolicited advice, Paul, you know, stop put people correcting just people's stop, grammar, just, just yeah, stop doing yeah, that. Stop doing but, that uh, yeah. but no, the reason why grammar is so provocative is because there's actually two, well, there's many ways of looking at grammar, but there are two contradictory ways of looking at grammar. And the, the sort of everyday on the street way of thinking about grammar is what's called the prescriptive approach. So prescriptive meaning I, I'm Paul and I know grammar and you don't. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you what to do. And that's yeah. the idea. That's the idea that we can get grammar wrong. Um, yeah. Descriptive grammar is the idea that no one who's speaking their first language can get their grammar wrong. So they, that doesn't mean to say that they might have a false start or they might, you know, they, they might get a word confused or whatever, but in terms of their actual acquisition and their knowledge of grammar, the person you're the, the, what's sometimes called the L1 speaker, the first language speaker, they, they are speaking perfectly grammatically in their variety of English or whatever language they're speaking. So they might not be speaking standard English or they might not be writing in standard English, um, but in the variety that they're speaking at the time, they're speaking perfectly grammatically. Now that the, and, and so what a descriptive linguist wants to do with the grammar, when they're charting the grammar, they are discovering, and the key word there is to discover, the structures of a variety of a language. The structures are inbuilt, the structures are part of us being part of a language community. And um, we, the, the, it's not a question of right or wrong with descriptive, it's just let's explore it. It's like if you were studying DNA or something, you don't, you know, you, you might notice that one particular gene produces something, but you don't, you don't think there's, you know, you don't, you, you don't say you're a bad gene, you know? And so, in, because that keeps you from actually exploring what's there to, to be seen. So a prescriptive grammar is what I call grammar shaming, which is um, effectively what you're, what you're saying is my variety is better than yours. Um, and from a descriptive perspective, um, it's 
the approach is no variety is intrinsically better than any other variety. They all have rules, they all have structures, and the descriptive approach is let's explore those. And so that 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 business between prescriptive and, and descriptive can spark a lot of debate. <laughs> okay, it certainly does, and it certainly does with teachers. Yeah. We spend a lot of the day correcting grammar. Yeah, yeah. So what we're really doing then is correcting what's already correct. Yes. Now, I do want to respond to that because I can imagine that there's a whole sort of slew of teachers saying, oh, I'd be doing my students a disservice if I didn't mm. correct their grammar. And they would be. And I'll tell you why, for several reasons. First of all, um, as we were just saying before, um, literacy is a different set of skills than oracy. And literacy is not something that, that, that is part of the language acquisition device. If you don't teach a child explicitly how to read and write, they don't learn it. Um, and there are still cultures that don't have any literacy. Uh, whereas if you don't, if it, you don't have to teach a child to speak. As long as they're surrounded by a language, they will pick up that language. So that's really important to recognize. And the other, th and so um, the other thing that we just simply don't want to ignore is that there are different registers and there are different conventions, and these things have implications. And so I can absolutely understand if a child thinks if I don't, you know, correct a child when or a student when they put their comma in the wrong place, then they might not do as well on the exam. And I, I you know, and I need to, and so, so it's not, I, I'm certainly not telling teachers to, to not, you know, to not correct, you know, there's, there, they, they actually do need to have a bit of a prescriptive feel to mm -hmm. it. But I think what can be really tricky for teachers is if they don't actually know why this, the student needs to do the thing they're asking them to do, or they can't explain it in a way that the, that the student can figure it out themselves. If it turns into a quick, into a case of, you should say it this way because it's the way I say it, that can produce a, a spirit of mistrust between you and the, and the student. And that, and it might also put the student in a position of feeling ashamed of the way they're speaking or the way they're they're writing. And I'm, teachers do not want um, their, their students to feel ashamed because they won't, they know they won't learn. And so what I think what needs to happen in the grammar classroom is that th there, there needs to be a kind of focus away from um, the, the sort of sense of you got it wrong, I'm correcting you. And instead a sense of, oh, let's explore what's happening with the way you express that, whether it's in writing or in speech. Okay. Yep, I get that. Um, that's good. And I do think, yes, our motivation is that upcoming examination or whatever. Certainly that's their main motivation. Yeah. Um, do you think there's an element of cultural capital as well, though? Because, you know, you, you know, if people are sending in application forms and there's, you know, apostrophes all over the place and that, that shouldn't be there or, and the wrong use of there and, and things like that, um, because you know i'm thinking about the sort of the language games that we have to engage in to make ourselves meet have meaning and understood and whether there's sort of a sense that people who haven't been shown how to play the game or haven't been able to take on board how to play the game 
maybe lose out in in other ways when you get out into the world where that is how they play the game if that makes sense it makes perfect sense catherine and i i think it's really important to explore this idea it is abs you absolutely have more cultural capital if you i'm going to use the word obey <laughs> the sort of rules about you know how you spell different homophones and where you put your apostrophes and that type of thing and um this is something that teachers struggle with all the time you don't you don't you th this sense that you want to make sure your students have they're equipped to face an unjust world and all i would just perhaps put out there today is um what's the most empowering way of actually handling the fact that it's an unjust world so you use the word game and you say okay if the student has the sense that because of maybe their language variety or their accent, their dialect, um, their um, that type of thing, or the, the maybe not such a great, um, maybe their their literacy they struggle with literacy, um, to to have a sense of to, to, it's not particularly empowering to think uh, I'm about to walk into this world and I've got all these deficits and mm -hmm. I've somehow got to kind of like find. You know, we use the word capital. I've got to somehow find the capital. I've got to somehow find the cash um, to somehow even get me just vaguely on a level playing field if I can even get that far. And I think that the spirit of that is extremely disempowering. And as opposed to the spirit, and now we'll just focus in on grammar, where you might be able to say to a, to a student, let's look at the amazing resources that you already have, but that you don't know that you have. And mm -hmm. let's now explore how you can look at those and learn about those. Um, and I've got some really things that I think are really great strategies for that if you'd like to hear them. But the business of, as opposed to, um, you need to go acquire all this capital. If we could instead say, let's focus on the resources that you already have, you just don't know about it yet. Let's, let's, let's play with those. Let's see if we can bring those out. Mm. Yeah. Tell us some of your strategies, Jody. We like strategies on this show. We like teachers being able to do something tomorrow morning at nine o'clock that they heard tonight, maybe. I, I, this, the one that I'm about to share, I am, I am genuinely in love with. I've often said to my, to my husband, if I wasn't already married to him, I would be, I would be married to this strategy. It's, um, <laughs> so what, what we can, if we go back to that thing that my niece Ellie was doing, where she said, you know, Jake, take my blocks away. And we realized, okay, mm -hmm. she's communicated that it's a clause and she's gotten all of the elements of that clause totally in place. And we know that we can do that as well. And all we need to do really to just to, what what we're doing is accessing our linguistic intuition. So this is all the stuff we knew when we were three three years old. Mm -hmm. We still know it now. We just don't know the names of the terminology for it. So what you can do, and we won't do it with Jake, take my blocks away. We'll imagine that she said something like even more amazing than that. And let's say she said something like my annoying brother, my parents produced without my permission has pilfered my priceless possessions. We'll, we'll, say, we'll say that she said that. <laughs> And we okay. realized that 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 um, has has pilfered my priceless possessions again. <laughs> and if we think that she said that, we can very very easily identify this, both the subject and the verb of that clause 
And we can do that without knowing what a subject is, and we can do it without knowing what a verb mm -hmm. is. And the, what, what we do is something called a probe. And a probe is a thing that linguists use to sort of get people to produce things where they're accessing their linguistic intuition. And the probe I use for this is called the question tag probe. And what you do is you take whatever clause you're working with and you put what's called a question tag at the end of it. So that you might be familiar with that term. And it just is like two little words. So you're having a good day, aren't you? So those two mm -hmm. words at the end that we use to simply make sure people are engaged in the conversation or you know check to see that people are tracking. Mm. When you, those two words, we can produce them automatically um, as English speakers, they, they just come out instantly. So if you can produce a question tag, then in the grammar, I use systemic functional grammar, that's, it's called a mood tag, but I call it a question tag. I mean, it is also called a question tag. Um, if you can produce a question tag, it gives you the clue to what the subject and the verb are. So is that making sense so that. far? And then I'll take, that, yeah. yeah. So what you can do is you say, my annoying brother, my parents produced without my permission has pilfered my priceless possessions again. And then your question tag would be, hasn't he? Hasn't he, yeah. You know, mm -hmm. and so most of the time students can get that instantly. They can, they can instantly give you a question tag for whatever clause you produce. And mm -hmm. then you, all you do to find the subject is you go to the pronoun in the tag. And if, if your students don't know what a pronoun is, don't shame them. Just tell them it's the second word. It's the last word <laughs> in the tag. <laughs> and the, in a question tag, the last word is always going to be something called a subject pronoun. Subject yeah. pronoun points to the subject. And so what you do is check to see what does he refer to yeah. and what you could replace in that clause with the word he. So you take my annoying brother, my parents produced without my permission, could be replaced with the word he. So that whole big phrase, my annoying brother, my parents produced without my permission, could be replaced with he. And so we know that whole big phrase is the subject. Mm -hmm. And when mm -hmm. Ellie did it, when she said, Jake, take my blocks away, it would be, didn't he? And we mm -hmm. know that the subject then is Jake, because the pronoun points to Jake. Mm -hmm. And then the verb, you take the what's called the auxiliary, and that's the little bit before the unt, <laughs> the first bit of the question tag. Um, my annoying brother has pilfered my priceless possessions again, hasn't he? So we look to has, and that points us to the verb. So we go and we see, oh, has pilfered, and there's your verb. And so you can just do this with, um, you know, my annoying brother must have taken my stuff, mustn't he? He is my annoying brother, must have taken as my verbs. So the must points to the first part of the verb. And that's something that uh, that um, when I tell that strategy to teachers, they really do go in the next morning and give it a try. Um, and what they tell me is that it produces this kind of spirit of um, collaboration and mm -hmm. a little bit of excitement because everybody can just do it. They don't need to be told. They don't have to memorize terminology and they can help each other out. Um, which is something I just think you really want in a classroom where your students are helping each other out. I mean, I had one teacher tell me that, um, you know, when she'd asked for them to, to identify the subject and when somebody was struggling, another another kid in the room would shout out, use the question tag, just use the question tag. And so they're Very getting a good. little bit of, sort of positive, peer, <laughs> peer, um, <laughs> positive peer pressure there.
Teachers um, like to hear that, you know, it means they've, they've definitely their message has landed with somebody. Exactly. And I think <laughs> it's that business of it just being very, very easy, but massively yeah. effective. And I think yeah. what that does is it's like, you, you know what the subject is, you know what the verb is, you just need a yeah. tool to get to it. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Okay, really so interesting. it is really interesting. Yeah. I wonder, you know, I wonder just before we take a short break, I wonder, could I maybe throw a hand grenade into that? Sure. <laughs> By asking you, do you know the way, for example, we now know, uh, well, I suppose we've always known that um, when we're reading words, as long as the first letter and the last letter are in the correct position, it doesn't matter how jumbled up the letters are in the middle for most, the vast majority of words. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. I wonder, is it not the same then for grammar? And I've got a very, very, very famous person who jumbles up his words, and yet we all understand him and we all love him. Yes, yes. Now, I'm going to tell you after these messages just who that person is. Join us after this short break. Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes EDAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, EDAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen Adapt to protect their careers. Subscribe at adapt.org.uk today. Adapt. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The BBC covers reports that Labour has dropped plans to end charitable status for private schools. The status exempts some private schools in England and Wales from taxes. The Labour leader, Sir Keir Starmer, had previously said charitable status for private schools could not be justified. The party said it will still remove other tax breaks if it wins the next general election. There are around 2,500 private schools in England and Wales and government figures show around half are registered as charities. Having charitable status means the schools cannot operate for profit and are eligible to claim some tax exemptions, including on donations and business rates. Since 2006, private schools have had to demonstrate they are creating public benefit in order to maintain their charitable status. Labour has said it would charge private schools 20% VAT and end business rates relief. It says this could raise an estimated £1.7 billion. A party spokesperson said the money would fund desperately needed teachers and mental health counselling in every secondary school. Last year, the Scottish Government scrapped business rate relief for private schools. The Conservatives have questioned whether tax changes would raise the £1.7 billion as claimed by Labour. The problem of RAC was highlighted again as parents with children at a secondary school in Durham, affected by the potentially unsafe concrete, staged a protest. 
Parents told schools minister Baroness Barron, who was visiting the school, that there had to be more support for the teachers and pupils and that the school must be rebuilt. The school is using a mix of face-to-face -face and online teaching after RAC was found shortly before the return to school from the summer break. The multi-academy trust in charge of the school has asked the DfE if it could use centre-assessed grades for GCSE and A-level pupils, similar to the way assessment was used during the pandemic. A DfE spokesman said it was working to bring back face-to-face -face teaching quickly and that the school would be rebuilt. Procurement, design and planning stages would be started before the end of the year. Schools Week reports on MPs' comments that government should create a school absence code specifically for mental health and review the adequacy of health services struggling with soaring waiting lists. The Parliamentary Education Committee has also urged the government to make its daily attendance data collection mandatory as soon as possible. The committee found growing demand for mental health services and special educational needs support, as well as the cost of living pressures and other issues, have compounded problems with attendance. However, Schools Minister Nick Gibbs said changes would add further complications for schools in coding absence, which could damage the accuracy of data. Full details of the committee's recommendations can be found in the article in Schools Week Online. The Guardian covers news that in America, students at more than 50 high schools across the country are proposing a Green New Deal for schools. They are demanding that their districts teach climate justice, create pathways to green jobs and plan for climate disasters. The campaign is seen as a reaction to right-wing efforts to ban or suppress climate education and activism at school. The national effort would see teach-ins, walkouts and petitions. The New Deal also calls for updated buildings and infrastructure to make schools more climate resilient. Further details can be found on the Guardian website. Finally, the Nuffield Trust has said that student loans in England should be written off for certain health staff once they have completed 10 years of NHS service. It says this is needed to stop a dropout crisis among nurses, midwives and other frontline staff. Ministers have rejected the idea saying support is already in place and that the current student finance system strikes the right balance between the interests of students and taxpayers, as well as highlighting training grants, support for childcare and some expenses. Tuition fees are not charged in Scotland and in Wales, tuition fees are covered if nurses and other frontline staff work for the NHS for two years. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative, offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes ADAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, EDAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen EDAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at edapt.org.uk today. EDAPT. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers. Teaching is... 
Welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is the Lit Lit Show on Thursday, the 5th of October. And tonight we're talking about linguistics and grammar with Dr. Jody Clark. And we're also privileged to have uh, Catherine Taylor, who's also a host on Teachers Talk Radio. And she has joined us tonight as well. Is everybody back in the room? We are. Thank I'm you. I'm back, Pa. Yes. Oh, that's great. Great, great, great. So, if I could just give a, a, and this will be really broad brush here, just a summary of what we've talked about. We've kind of said um, grammar is neither right nor wrong. There's no good or bad grammar, but there might be a context or a situation in terms of, you know, Catherine said filling in forms for job applications and, you know, the capital that goes with that, examinations as well. Um, we mentioned very quickly something of imposter syndrome and teaching grammar. We might come back to that. Uh, we talked very much about the sequencing of words, and you talked about you know phrases being tagged on to the end of sentences, which help us to kind of direct meaning and give emphasis and so on. And I threw what might be a hand grenade in before the news, and I said, does the sequence of words and so on, does it really matter? Because if you think of the Star Wars character, Yoda, <laughs> he mixes up all his words and we love him. He's one of the most loved characters in the whole set of films. And we, and, right, you are. You know, when we were at school, we used, to, <laughs> we used to speak in Yoda language. It was brilliant. Can I respond to that, Paul? Because I just think that's an absolutely brilliant question. That's right? why I'm asking you. Of course you can. <laughs> I, can't, I can't wait to hear what you're going to say. <laughs> I, I just think that um, what your question gets at is the question of connection, which is if we're connecting with someone, if we are genuinely open to what they're communicating to us, it doesn't matter whether they're using grammatical English, semaphores, um, emojis. The, the point is that if our intention is connection, then the structure or the surface element or the, the way in which that is communicated will fall down like a veil. And we will be open to, we're curious, we want to know what that person has to express. We want to know something about their experience of their world, which they can mm -hmm. uniquely express to us. Mm -hmm. And um, I think this is really, really, really important, especially you know when we get wrapped up in questions about grammar. Um, it doesn't actually matter if our intention is to connect. It doesn't matter. No, no as, I don't. As long as. If our intention is to connect, yeah. if our intention yes. is to connect, yeah. then it doesn't matter how someone is the saying what they're saying. Yeah. This is right. Yeah. I mean, this is why um, we don't we don't give babies a hard time for looking at mm. us and smiling and um, mm. and 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 babbling. I mean, let's yeah. let's be honest. Babies really they're they're just their their oracy is pretty terrible. Um, and we don't throw them out the window and say, mm, you're not going to be able to survive in this world. You don't have the right kind of cultural capital. We say, oh, look at how adorable you are. And if we, if we, if we could connect with other people in that way, not necessarily how adorable are you, but you have an experience of the world that's new to me, um, that's unknown to me. Um, I'm curious about that. Um, yeah. It doesn't matter how they express it. <laughs> yeah, good point, good point. Could I maybe take that a step further then? And... 
okay, babies don't really matter. But, you know, let's move up, uh, up a little bit, you know, say teenagers. And mm -hmm. teenagers love to have, you know, their own jargon, their own language, their own grammar, and this, that, and the other. And, and look, that gives them an identity, a cohesiveness, and so on. And it kind of shuts out adults and, you know, things like that. Certainly in, in spoken language, we talk about code switching. Yeah. And code switching is where you speak one form of language, you know, when you're at home and, you know, that, that could have all sorts of content. But when you go to school, you know, you speak a much better, uh, oh, that's really wrong, not better, but a much more um, universal version yeah. of English or something. Do we do the same with grammar then? Yes, yes. So um, you can speak, well, you can speak in different registers and those registers will have potentially different structures. Um, when we talk about the word grammar in linguistics often means syntax or the structures, um, but it could also include, like you say, it could include sort of jargon and it could include sort of particular types of uh, word use and and discourse markers and that type of thing. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, it, is, it is code switching. And I think what's interesting about teenagers when they do it, um, I myself personally don't actually do that much code switching. Now contrast that with a teenager who's code switching maybe two, three different codes regularly. Yeah. And who's more skilled? <laughs> you know, mm. what, the, the person who's just using one code pretty much all the time or the teenager yeah. who's actually navigating three of them. Um, and you know, you might, you might say, okay, well, um, they're, they're using the wrong one. Well, to them, they might not be using the wrong one. Like they actually might be trying to exclude you. And that that's, you know, you can evaluate that in terms of whether you want to feel excluded or not. Um, but the, 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 the teenage code switching is, is a, is a skillful, interesting use of language. And I, it's more, it's, it's more skillful than my, than my use of language, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think I it's, think yeah, I take your point as well. Some people kind of code switch a lot more than others. Yeah, mm -hmm. I I would be inclined to. Yeah. And my two children criticize me for doing it. But it's interesting why I do it. I do it. Um, I suppose the word I would use is, you know, for an empathic connection. Yeah. You just talked about communicating and connecting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But um yeah, and I, I would be aware that I do it unconsciously. It really is a switch. Yeah. And it, it's on, I'm not aware that I'm doing it. I'm only aware when my two boys are with me and they say, Daddy, why are you talking like that? What's wrong with you? Uh, what, what which, you? Which, which codes are you using, Paul? What, what, give me an idea of um, the um, Well, okay. They, I live out in rural Northern Ireland here. Mm -hmm. And there'd be a lot of farmers who, you know, would speak certain ways with certain accents and certain, you know, grammatical tweaks and this, that, and the other. And I would just fall into that immediately if I'm talking to them. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas if I stand up in school and I'm giving an assembly to 400 people, oh gosh, I will be needles and pins and everything, my voice and everything will change. Yeah. No. So that's what that's called. What you're doing there is something in linguistics that's called convergence, um, which is that you're exactly what you described. You adapt your language to match the people that you're talking to. And you're exactly right, according to linguistic research, which is it's not conscious. You don't think, oh, I'm going to pick up this particular tone and this particular accent or whatever. You simply do it. And that's called convergence. Mm. And mm. at the other end of the spectrum is something called divergence, where you actually move away so the people that you might be talking to you you actually 
let's say you, you speak a particular form of a kind of hyper-correct standard English, and if you want to diverge maybe from, I don't know, some your teenage boys or something, um, you might go even more correct, like absurdly correct. <laughs> and that's something mm -hmm. called divergence to say, I'm setting myself differently. So I'm setting myself up as distinct from you. Yeah, so those are very, very, um, uh, those are quite common things that people do. Like I said, like you said, it's not conscious. No, no, it's not conscious. No. And yet it must use up quite a lot of brain energy or something. It, it must. Well, I think it also is happening or I think I think um, I, to, where's that happening? The answer to that is I have no idea. But but, what <laughs> I, but but in terms of it using up brain energy, the one thing I'd say about that is that it just does also show um, and I'm just thinking about this now we talk about child language acquisition or first language acquisition, but um, clearly we're still acquiring in potentially the same way that children are, we're still acquiring the sort of ways of speaking of people around us, um, you know, and, 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 and adapting ourselves to those. So um, yeah, we, we, we must still be acquiring things if we can unconsciously converge or unconsciously diverge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Gosh, great conversation, yes. So oh, look, so, unfortunately, so we're thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we're near the out of time now. And uh, as is traditional on this show, I always ask a question towards the end. Um, maybe this time I'll ask it to both of you. If you had a magic wand and only one spell to cast, what change would you make to education that would significantly improve the lot of teachers? What about Jodie first? Oh, oh, fantastic. Um, for me, I wish that the underpinning structure of our education system was less, no, not at all focused on targets, achievement, compliance you know, this sort of deficit model where here are the things that you need to learn. And if you don't, it's going to be bad news for you. And, and, and for teachers, that business of you have to be the one to sort of fill up the metaphoric cup. And I wish that that attitude could just instantly with my magic wand disappear. And I wish it could be replaced with a genuine spirit of connection, creativity, curiosity, and not just not just lip service to those things. And I just think that's that I think when when teachers are having their best days, it's in the spirit of connection, creativity and curiosity. And and I would love for the structures of the educational system to be set up to give them more of those best days. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah, great. That would be a super wish, yeah. Wish it would happen, yeah. <laughs> Gosh, that's a, it's a really, really, really brilliant, nuanced answer. I was just going to go for the straightforward. Could you fund it? Um, <laughs> fund it, please. Yeah. Cut to the money, yeah. Cut to the money, yeah. Well, yeah. I just I feel really strongly that teachers can continue to be learners only when they have the headspace to do so and the structures in place that support their learning, and and of course that that does transfer into the benefit for the students because if we stagnate we can't bring them the best and the latest and, and, and whatever it is that we want to impart and if we are burnt out we can't do it either so I just think you know I've always thought if there was just a third more teachers 
hypothetical ones clearly because we haven't got any real ones at the mm. moment but uh, if there was just a third more in the workforce and we all had a third less classes we could all perform a third better perhaps mm. excellent yeah i think you're right yeah i'm um, getting messages here that everybody who's listening in is enjoying the show and we're good to go for another few minutes so i think if everybody's okay we'll take advantage of that sounds and great we're all good to go with it yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah go um, for it. i suppose we, we've kind of covered a little bit but then um I suppose I had a kind of a specific thought about, you know, using grammar to specific ends. Can, can people use grammar for specific, maybe self-serving purposes or anything like that? Well, um, can you just tell me what you mean by self-serving purposes, Paul? Uh, no, because I haven't thought that through That's enough. That's okay, <laughs> uh, because I have an interpretation <laughs> of it, but I, I wanted to make no, sure it wasn't said. No, 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 well, I will, I will, okay. I will, of course I have. Um, I suppose um, if you think, well, the, the, the political party conferences are on at the minute, and when yeah. you see people up on the stage, you know, we, we, we had a particularly poignant example yesterday of uh, Penny Mordaunt uh, and the language and the, and the way she used her language and combined it with her body language and so on. Um, and her grammar structures were very kind of authoritative and, you know, um, angry and so on. I'm just wondering, you know, th that would be very different, I think, from what we would ask a teacher to do or, you know, a therapist or a counsellor. And I'm just yeah. wondering, do we use, do we employ grammar and grammar structures and so on for specific aims? Yeah. Okay. That's completely, that makes perfect sense, Paul. Mm. There's a whole field of study in linguistics that explores exactly that called critical discourse analysis. And it's the study of grammar for political ends. That's, that's a two, um, that's, that's not a complex enough exp explanation of it, but that just gives you a flavor. Mm -hmm. And it would be something, what, what you can do is you can emphasize things and de-emphasize other things, and you can do it with the structure of language. So just as an example, just to use Catherine's, um, um, Catherine's magic wand. And if we say the education system has been defunded, okay, so that's my clause. What that is, is a, is a teacher's, English teachers will recognize this. This is a, this is a um, clause in the passive voice. And what happens when you've got a clause in the passive voice is that the subject is not the person doing the verb, right? So who's doing the defunding? Well, if you put it in the passive voice, then we don't know who did the defunding. You can, mm. you could say, but, um, but, it, but if you put it in the active voice, then, um, you know, the Tory government has done the defunding or whichever, mm -hmm. whichever, whichever party has done that, or at least. And it could you, be any party. It could be course, absolutely it any could be party. any speaker at a political conference. Exactly. Well. Yeah. And so and so it's um, but the, the point is, if you say the education system has been defunded, then you might get. Yes, it, it actually has. But but not but not the emphasis on who's done it and that it takes the focus away from what we call the agent um, or the actor of the actual defunding or the, or the body that's done that. And there's lots, of, um, there's lots of grammatical ways that you can shift the argument or shift the focus of attention. Um, and um, uh, journalists are very skilled at this, um, political um, parties are very skilled at it um, and and, yeah. and and you know anybody who's had to write anything for, for for that's that's trying to point people in a particular direction is very skilled at it and what what's very useful is being able to sort of identify how those structures are uh, shaping the picture in a particular way mm -hmm. Mm 
Yeah. And of course, you know, my sense is that they're very powerful kind of strategies and techniques for communicating out because they're they're received almost unconsciously, yeah. I think. That's you right. Know, we're influenced. Um, you know, we're not thinking about the structure of somebody's political speech necessarily. Yes. Some people might, journalists might and, and analysts might. Yeah. But the people who are receiving it through their televisions and radios in their living room, it's just kind of pouring into them and, and influencing them. Well, it kind of goes back to what I was saying about sort of connection, but it's the sort of darker shadow side of that, which yeah. is if you're connecting, mm -hmm. you are taking in good faith that what someone's telling you is not only true, but that it's the most the most accurate shape of the situation. Mm -hmm. um, and yet when people are manipulating that, and if you're if you're connecting and you're, you're focusing in on the way they've shaped the situation, then you're you're, you're not you, you might not be attuned to like you say, you're not to, to focus on the structure of something is necessarily going to take you away from the connection and the meaning and the taking in what they're yeah. saying. So it's an mm -hmm. extra level of work that you have to do. And um, when people are simply listening at the end of a hard day, for instance, um, mm -hmm. it can take an extra level of um, of of analysis and it also requires you know you to put on put on your cynical hat which doesn't always feel comfortable no no um now my wife who who, who works in donna who works in literacy and so on be a big proponent of um you know the whole critical literacy yes and yes. making you know children and young people critically literate yes uh, a vital skill i think and i think it's um you know, it's another one of those things, I think, when you set about making children critically literate, it, it's kind of the tide that raises lots of boats. Yes. Yes. Do you know what I mean? So yes. they have an understanding of, you know, critical literacy in relation to a poem or a play or whatever. They yes. tend then to be able to do better in history, geography and, and literary subjects, uh, as well as, you know, manage the news and daily life that's coming at them. It's also an empowerment thing because it's like if you're living in a world where things you know things are unjust, you experience the injustice regularly, but mm. you 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 can definitely, especially when you're a young person, just simply see yourself as the victim of that or certainly someone who doesn't have any agency over it. But mm -hmm. when when you're they're learning the skills that that it sounds like your wife is teaching, then that gives them an extra level of awareness that is extremely empowering. It puts them as sort of agents. It's a sort of sense of, ah, I've seen behind the veil now, I'm capable of doing this. Um, yes. And so that that gives them an angle. And I think that type of, like sharpening that particular skill can help people decide whether they want to do activism, what type of activism they want to do, mm -hmm. you know, whether they want to sort of bring these things to the attention of other. And we live in a beautiful age where um, if people want to bring the attention to other people of the messages that are not being, you know, that, that are just below the surface, they've got social media to explore that. They've got ways of actually making that thing, those available. So I think it's a very, very empowering, very empowering work that your wife is doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it certainly is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Some of this, um, does being uh, like a grammar aficionado or whatever, you know, someone who's kind of maybe uh, a little bit stuck on or obsessed with grammar, does that make writing difficult or more challenging? So first of all, are you calling me stuck on grammar? Is that what you're saying, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> you, did you just call me obsessed? <laughs> 
Anglo Anglo American relations have just, just exploded across the Atlantic. I can, make, I can I can cope with you making fun of my accent, but you called me obsessed about grammar. But no, I I Very love good. I love Very that good. question because I think what happens with grammar is people often associate it with a kind of editing stage. You know, grammar is what comes in when somebody comes in with a red pen once you finish the writing. Um, well, and can I, can I interrupt you and tell you yeah. a story here? Yes, yes. You see. In Northern Ireland, I don't know if you know many people from Northern Ireland or not. I know you've been here, Jodie, but yeah. Catherine, I don't know if you do. But a lot of family, actually. So yeah, I've oh, got to. You I'm, might I'm actually, well know this. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say I've got my uh, got my uh, Irish citizenship a few years ago through that connection. So. Very good. Very good. Well, you'll know that some of the most powerful people in the world are Irish mothers right and one of the things that irish mothers are measured on and gosh they don't like being measured but one of the things they're measured on is their children and how well they're rearing their children and one of the big indicators is how well their children speak so what you find is you know when you're at home and whatever and you know your grammar's perfect or whatever but your mummy will always correct your grammar don't mm -hmm. say I seen or I done. It's mm -hmm. I saw or I did. Mm -hmm. So Irish mummies have a lot of responsibility here in terms of teaching grammar to Northern Irish children. Mm -hmm. I think that killed you both off. No, <laughs> no, no, no. I don't think... The cultural capital then as well, because it's about sending your, your children out into the world where they can be competitive and excel. And it's it's kind of, what we said earlier about the injustice of the world and, and needing to be able to have the edge and you know it's almost as you know poor grammar would be as bad as a like an unwiped nose you know in yes. terms of stopping yes. you getting ahead that's right and yes. I think I think just to respond to the question about writing there, Paul, yes, um, yes, and, yes. and and I love I that I love that analogy, Catherine, of the unwiped nose, because it yeah. really does bring out that element of shame. If you know, if you if your nose dripped in the middle of a lecture, <laughs> you know, that would be you feel so full of shame. And I imagine that um, these Irish children who've had their mothers telling them that I seen that just giving them a really hard time for saying I seen <laughs> every time that slips out, they probably feel a little bit of oh, no, shouldn't have said that and what that does is that when they hear someone else say i seen it triggers something in them where it's like no that's shameful you shouldn't do that mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. spirit of shame is such a it's just a it's there, there's nothing that will kill your writing vibe more than mm -hmm. being worried about the words you're going to put on the page for instance being worried that everything that you say is th the things that would most come naturally to you perhaps to say on the page are somehow shameful like like being being seen with your nose dripping mm -hmm. and i love that analogy but one of the ways that um i i actually i actually myself use grammar as a like a like a writing prompt like i use it as a motivation for writing but it's not the prescriptive grammar um i use other things um in terms of grammar where i give myself because grammar when we move beyond the prescriptive things and we start to understand that it is a it is the expression of an experience of the world, then it can give us all kinds of ideas about the different ways that you could express it. So do I have time to just give an example there, Paul? 
Yes, of course you do. Okay, so like if you, if you said, let's say you wanted to write about something that you know you were afraid of, and if I just gave you like a couple of little prompts, and I said um, you could say I am afraid, mm -hmm. and if I were to say the second word, there's a verb, mm -hmm. am, and if you just tried to think of other verbs that could go in that slot, so I am afraid. What else could go in there rather than am? Um, well, you could just say, I fear, I fear spiders. Uh, we want to, we want to keep afraid there. So you imagine you've got, okay. I blank gotcha. afraid. So it could be something yeah. like, I feel afraid or. Uh, yes. I feel um, afraid. I think I'm afraid. I. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 I've, I've become afraid. Yeah. I seem afraid. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, and. I act, I act afraid. I act afraid. Yeah. And most of those words um, are a particular type of verb. Um, and I'm not going to tell you what they are. <laughs> I'm just going to tell mm -hmm. you they're a particular type of verb. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to shift it around. I'm going to take afraid and I'm going to put it in the subject position. So we need it needs to not be what's called an adjective. So don't worry if you don't know the terminology, people listening. Mm -hmm. But we're going to turn it into a noun and we're going to say fear. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to and we're going to put the I in the object of the complement position and we're going to say fear mm -hmm. blank me so we could say like fear grips me mm -hmm. um, and then if we think about other words that could go in that slot so like fear grips me fear fear stresses me fear stresses, worries me yes fear. yeah yeah, yeah. Okay, fear, yeah fear haunts me fear yeah. um distracts me yeah um so you've got a bunch of sentences there that are the same experience, right? Being afraid. Um, do, do, do some of them feel a little bit like more compelling writing to you? The I am afraid, I feel afraid versus fear grips me, fear haunts me, fear stresses me, fear worries me. Well, they, they, they do, of course, yeah. Yeah, and I think yeah. the ones with like fear grips me, haunts me, stresses me, et cetera, feels a yeah. little more compelling to me. And yeah. what's happening is that particular grammatical structure is inviting, it's like a probe. So the fear yeah. gap me bit is inviting a particular type of verb, which is called a material process verb or a material mm -hmm. verb, which is about things actually doing things to other things in the world. Like it's like they're physical things. Like if it grips me, you can imagine somebody gripping your hand, or if it's haunting mm -hmm. me, you imagine somebody behind, or it stresses me. You can imagine playing with a stress ball. Um, mm -hmm. It worries me like somebody else could worry me. That's like an interaction between two things. Mm -hmm. And so, that, that, but there's particular grammatical configurations that are going to produce those types of verb, um, mm -hmm. whereas the I blank afraid with the adjective at the end, that's going to produce a, what's called a relational verb. And when you know things like that, you can just play with it because there's a million ways to express feeling afraid or a million ways to express whatever it is you want mm -hmm. to write about. And if you've got, if you can, if, if people start, well, this would be a big dream, but if people started orienting their, um, the idea of grammar to being about the way we the way we structure our experiences, as opposed to grammar being the thing you're always getting wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then you could just have a play with it, and so sitting down to write would just be playful and like like playing with a bunch of clay or something, like sculpting something out of clay, as opposed to putting something down on a white page and imagining, you know your mom telling you that you said the wrong thing, your teacher putting a red line through it or that type of thing. And for yeah. me, the, the, for me, grammar really incites that spirit of play. And I would love for, I, I just, I, I, it brings me so much joy. I would love for other people to experience grammar in that way. Yeah. Yeah. 
Gosh, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a really, really interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um on that note, I'm really sorry, guys. I can actually hear my little boy up and out of bed, so I'm gonna have to drop off the call. Um, but thank you, thank you so much for, for having me on as well this evening because it's just been so interesting to to um to to have this conversation. So thank you very much. Catherine, I thought I heard him in the background there. Listen, yeah. thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Okay. Thank you, Catherine. Great. It was lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you as well. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye now. Um, I suppose then, really, Jody, we ought to finish soon. But I'm wondering, is it important to get the message out to teachers that... And how do we do that? How do we get the message out to teachers that they should not fear grammar? Yeah. It shouldn't be something that traumatizes them, causes them to feel imposter syndrome in any way, or indeed causes them to feel that, you know, they should stand on a stage and aspire to a certain type or style of grammar. I think even just that understanding, I think these, I think these little techniques like that question tag probe that I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. this idea that you have a linguistic intuition and that there are ways of accessing it and that you can do it in a playful, empowering way. I think for most teachers that I know, um, if they can get that spirit of excitement and empowerment in the classroom, um, that's, that's, that's like gold dust, I think. And I think mm -hmm. sometimes um, with 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 teachers who maybe don't have the back, especially English teachers who don't have the background in grammar, um, mm. grammar just constantly feels like the thing that they're supposed to know that they don't know. Their grammar is fine, but they they don't know the terminology. And mm. I think it can just be very reassuring to realize. First of all, nobody knows all of the terminology. I Google. I must have googled like six grammatical terms today. I Google mm. is my friend. Um, but also different different um, linguists use different different schools of linguistics use different terms so that's annoying and frustrating but it also lets you off the hook because um and i realize that you know for the curriculum you need to know certain ones yeah, but if it if it becomes less about memorizing terminology or constantly feeling like you don't know and instead it's about here's here are some tactics or some some hacks or some things that that i can do right now to just play with it. And once you get more and more comfortable with the actual playing with it, that's when the motivation comes to think, oh, huh, I wonder what kind of verb that is. Let me just look that up real quick. You know, and it, it's really nice to be able to do that in the classroom with students as well. I do this all the time. It's like, oh, I don't know what that is, but isn't it interesting? Let's see if we can figure it out. And I think getting that spirit of it's interesting. We don't need to know it immediately, but we do need to have a particular approach, which is about, mm. let's see what we can access in terms of what we already know, but we don't know that we know. Yeah. Yeah. Although even just listening to you, it, it is kind of anti what teachers do, isn't it? Um, you know, we do want to correct. We do want to formulate grammar the way that suits us because we know examinations and so yeah. on will look at that and assess that. But what's really lovely, and, and what I think when we think in terms of correcting, I think, it, 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 again, that can be very empowering for students when you say, okay, let's look at the way you've written this, let's read it back, and let's explore some other ways that it can be expressed more clearly. 
Um, yeah. And so, so, so recognizing that, um, again, it's about connection. It's like, ah, in this, you have something that you want to say. Maybe you don't really want to say it. You've got to write it down because it's, but, but it's your, but, but you're trying to be clear. So let's talk about, you know, how, how it could be clearer and how it could be more in tune with what you want to do. And if they've got a mm -hmm. few, um, if, you know, if you've got like the question tag probe, for instance, then a student can quickly realize that maybe their subjects and their verbs don't agree. And so, mm -hmm. oh, okay, well, I can just quickly fix that. And, and, and the teacher can simply, I mean, I'm acting as if they, the, the, the teachers have one-on-one, -on -one, you know, <laughs> this is going back to the, the difficulties with the funding and education, but, but the spirit of it is um, if the, if the kids, the students have some tools for actually being able to express themselves in a way that's clear, and they have the tools themselves, then that's empowering. And I think it has to do with sort of focusing in on the intentions of what it is they're expressing and the intentions behind what they're writing. Um, but I think with grammar, um, rather than, you don't want the teacher to be the one always doing the correcting because then that's the teacher taking on the proofreading role. What you mm -hmm. want is students who are their own proofreaders or their own editors. Absolutely, yes, yeah, that would be great, yeah. Jodie, we have a question here. It's come in from Paul, who is also a host on Teachers Talk Radio. He's asking, how do you feel about criteria for young writers and the inclusion of fronted adverbials, uh -huh. expanded noun phrases, switching clauses, etc., at, for example, year two? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm I, I Paul's not a host, but he's just a He's a regular contributor. Um, yeah, it's um. I'm so glad someone got in with the fronted adverbials <laughs> because uh, that's just. Well, you're going to a... have to explain that to me because. <laughs> okay. Well, um, and the um, and and the other Paul will will would 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 be able to explain this um better than me, mm -hmm. but but what he's referring to is a kind of set of terminology that sort of has been imposed by the curriculum. Which is to which is to say, these terms are things that 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 school children need to be in command of, and I'm just going to be very honest about how I feel about it, um, and keep in mind that I have never taught a year two child in my life. So just mm -hmm. we need to take everything that I say with a pinch of salt. Um, but when I were, was, was when I've sort of looked at the curriculum for children at that age, to me it feels like let's throw in some fancy words to make us feel like we're teaching something valuable. You know, and it's not in it, it, it simply comes across as like window dressing to me, you know, um, and to tell you, Paul, what a fronted adverbial is, and I might be getting this wrong, but effectively, it's a particular type of the clause, the term I use for it is the adjunct, but it's like, um, you know, um, Jake, take my blocks away again. Yeah. We could put again at the front <laughs> or, you know, uh, Jake has taken my blocks away. Unfortunately, we could put unfortunately at the front or Jake has taken my blocks um, blocks away for the last time. We could put for the last time at the front. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't understand why it's I had never heard the term fronted adverbial before it showed up in the curriculum. Um, it's right. never anything that I encountered in my sort of career as a linguist. It just never came across it. Um, and 
I don't, I just don't understand why it matters whether it's in the front or the back. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's, there are times when you want one in the front, but it's not like it has any extra added value for the verbial to be at the front, except in particular contexts. So yeah. to me, um, and I'd be curious to know um, what, what Paul feels about this. And, and same thing well, with things like- Well, I think we can actually help you with that because we've actually got Paul connected now. Oh, Paul, I'm thrilled. That's fantastic. Hello. Uh, hello. Oh, there you go. Yes. Can you hear me? All right. Okay. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? We can hear you loud and clear now. Yeah. Brilliant. Paul, Super. you're most welcome. Yeah. Um, yes. Fronted adverbials are the bane of my life. So I haven't, I haven't said, I haven't said anything too controversial from your perspective then when I say that. Oh, not, not, not at all. Okay, no. good. <laughs> the, the more basic, the more basic, the better, to be honest, in terms of teaching the children. Yeah. If I've um, if I've taught one year three who looks at me com completely confounded and confused, I've taught a thousand of them because some of them are actually unable to do the basic grammar, never mind throw in all of these things that they're told that they're supposed to do. It must you know. just, Paul, it must just break your heart, though, that when you've got this thing that presumably in your mind isn't important and then the child feels they can't learn it. And so then they have a sort of sense of disempowerment. That must feel so frustrating. It, it's really frustrating. And what we, I've, I've worked at a few different schools, so I've used a few different schemes and, and thing like, things like that. And all of these companies who are coming up with these schemes are just trying to, to tick the boxes on yes. like NFDR tests and stuff like that. Yeah, and yeah. If you just, if we could just get children just to get the basics right first, and then when they've grasped that, then when they're older, they can throw as many fronted adverb bills in as they like. You know? Look, I, I've made it. I made it to the ripe old age of I don't know my mid thirties, and I didn't know what a fronted adverbial is, and it hasn't really affected me that much. And I hate to break it to whoever wrote that part <laughs> of the curriculum, but it's. Yeah. Um, but I think the the frustrating thing is there's a. Um, it's the, the the curriculum sets it up so that children start to doubt their ability with language. And it, and it, sort, of, it sort of sets them up for failure. And that, um, and I, I just, I, 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 just I, I feel so much empathy for you in that situation where you're trying to make the, your students, your pupils feel confident and, and, and learn things in a way that is scaffolded and that they can build on what they've learned. Am I wrong? That's what you're yeah. after. Is that right? That's that's exactly right, yeah. yeah. And the, the thing is, I mean, I was, I was very much, um, before I did teacher training, I couldn't have told you what half the grammar terminology it. was, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. And the thing is, actually, since I, since I did my training, I mean, I've been a teacher now for 16 years. Yeah. So in all that time, the terminology for and but so has gone from connectives to yep. conjunctions yep. to all sorts because someone said it should be different. No, that's right. And this is what I was saying before, this idea that every single linguist, every single grammarian um, will will have different sets of terms. And as it happens, you know, all the terms are just as right as any other term. It just depends on which grammar you're using. Meaning when I say which grammar, I mean like which grammar book. Um, and it's, it's, um, 
you know, I'll, I'll have students coming in in the first year and they'll come up with a grammar term and I'll say, I'm sorry, I don't know what that term is. Can you explain it to me? Um, and usually they can, which is nice. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, but I think just to get back to other Paul's when we were talking about imposter syndrome, um, it's devastating for teachers because it makes it can, makes many teachers feel like they're somehow in the wrong. And it's like, no, you're not in the wrong. What what you need um, is sort of the 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 way of accessing the structures that everybody has access to. Um, and then the terminology can come next. Do you know what I mean? It's like if you've if you've got this, if you, like the, the word you were using was basics, and of course children need the basics. But but as teachers, we also need the basics. <laughs> what we need is a, a sort of set of principles about how language is structured at a very basic level, and then we can like just like our pupils, we can build on that. Um, you throw a million different um, million different terms and say memorize the terms. Um, it's extremely disempowering. I mean, I've um, I've I've had to say I, I'm teaching first year students um, a module at Sheffield Hallam, and we 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 do what I call the nitty gritty of grammar in that module, and um, and they're like, oh, I really struggle with the terminology, and I say to them, are you okay if we just don't worry so much about the terminology? And that's that makes them feel very suspicious <laughs> because you know they've 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 gone through their entire sort of school years needing to know the terminology and i would rather have them have a sort of felt experience of what the structures how the structures show up before we then leave i mean we I'm, I'm making it sound like we don't give them labels we do give them labels but we find we find the structures through these kind of experimental um probes um so that they can access it before they have to worry too much about what they mean excellent paul thank you very much, thank you very I, much I feel your, your pain paul <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Well, look, I think we'd better wrap the show up here. That's been a long show this evening, and we've had uh, a very good canter over an enormous spectrum of issues, all to do with linguistics and grammar. Jody, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I just feel there's so much more still left to talk about. Uh, and maybe someday we'll have you back on the show. That would be and lovely. Paul, the pleasure thank has you been for again. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for such great questions, Paul. Thank you, everybody. Good night and be safe. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.